So hello, I'm Mike Wheeler, co-host of One Step Ahead, and I'm looking across the room. There is Kim Leary. Nice to see you, Kim. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm really happy that uh, we're going to be able to talk about something today that bridges both of our interests, pitches, because I see a pitch as part of a negotiation. I can imagine you can correct you if I'm wrong on this, Kim, but if you're in a leadership role, and here you teach adaptive leadership, you're trying to enlist support to a new initiative, to a new way of doing it, whatever the case may be. I don't want to trivialize it. Um, a pitch can be inspirational. Um, there's also an instrumental aspect to it as well. Am I on base or off base? I, I think that's right. I think we're always making pitches of one kind or another, and increasingly, even in the mechanics of getting work done in the academy, it's relevant. In many foundations these days, when you're applying for a grant, and I just finished uh, being a judge for a competition, it comes with a 90-second or two-minute video where it's not just the materials, it's how the person is telling you about what they uh, have in mind for you to fund. That's True in so many realms, there are a few others that have changed. If you think about people who are trying out to be in a symphony orchestra, um, now that's behind a screen. You hear the music. You know, you don't know whether the person is five foot two or six foot six, what color their skin is, or anything of that sort. But often these pitches are about self-presentation. And you're right that we're pivoting back and forth. Where. There's an invitation now in some context to bring your whole self to the pitch. And well, I think we're going to hear what the impact of that is. And also, very important work that you mentioned about maybe getting better outcomes when we're just listening to what people do in an orchestra. Well, and let us dive in. We're going to have Lakshmi Balachandra, who's a professor at Babson College, who is been in the pitch business as a venture capitalist at one point and uh, now teaches at Babson and so forth and does a lot of research on this. I'm looking forward to having Lakshmi here. Yeah, she's a good friend and I'm looking forward to her talk as well. I'm, I'm going to do an introduction of Lakshmi and then she can disavow everything I say. <laughs> and I may get a few things wrong, but undergraduate at the University of Chicago, mm -hmm. Pretty rigorous school. Nerd school is what he's really saying. <laughs> yeah. I, well, no, no. We're about to get there. You got your MBA from MIT. I would think that that might be in that category. And I speak as somebody who taught there, happily so. Some work in venture capital. Oh, and you've got a doctorate as well. Mm -hmm. That would be enough for most people. But you also spent some years as an improv comic. Is that correct? That's I'd love to get you back sometime to talk about that, but we're going to talk about something else today. Uh, Kim, Lakshmi has done a lot of work in pitches, elevator pitches, for people who are trying to start a business. Yes, and being able to craft a pitch, as I understand it, is becoming increasingly important, not just for venture capital, but also even when you're submitting a proposal for a foundation and getting a grant. Yeah. So, so tell us about your research. What have you learned and what do you teach in that regard? Yeah, so uh, like I said, pleasure to be here, especially to talk about pitching. And as Kim was saying, I mean, pitching is just an invaluable skill for anyone. I mean, you use 
you pitch every day and everywhere, right? In every business position, whether you're pitching your boss for on a new, you know, deal or a or a new new area for the business to go in. As an entrepreneur, you have to be able to pitch. And so my research has really focused on the entrepreneur's venture pitch to investors, because as Mike pointed out, my background prior to my PhD was um, I worked in venture capital. And so I was really struck that this was a financial decision that we were making, you know, deciding to invest in a company. But we would never invest unless we had had the entrepreneur come in and pitch. Hmm. And that pitch was where we would say, yes, we want to investigate this company further, or nope, no way, we are passing. So you've read the proposal, you've run the numbers, you've done all that stuff that you would think would be central to the decision, but in the end, the thumbs up or thumbs down depended on the pitch? Precisely. And how long would a typical pitch be when you were the one who'd be writing the check as the yeah. investor? That's what's so fascinating is that as an investor, the pitches could be anywhere from 15 minutes to 45 minutes, depending on if the pitch is going well, to be totally honest, right? You know, within about 10, 15 minutes, we would have a very clear sense that this was not something that we wanted to investigate further. And as I mentioned, that was purely based on how the person was presenting the venture. I want to listen carefully in this, on how the person was presenting the venture. Not what they were describing about it, it was the form of the presentation, there was something they were doing? Well, as an investor, I had no idea, right? When I sat on that, quote, side of the table and was watching and listening to these pitches, but we would come up as a venture team and an investment team and say, we collectively pretty much knew after the pitch that we weren't interested in moving further. So when I got my PhD, I wanted to understand what was driving that decision. What was it, as I think back now, you know, what was it that the person was doing in that meeting that was making us decide that we wanted to invest or not? And was it something about the project, the venture, or was it something about the person, or both? So this is where it gets interesting, because if you ask an investor, they will almost always say it's about the company, right? That it's purely about the market fundamentals and what the company is about. And it actually started, Mike, when I was working with you in, back in 2005 with Sandy Pentland's book that... Mike actually introduced me to, um, called Honest Signals. And that book opens with one of his master's students had done this experiment where they had taken the exact same ventures and they had given one group of VCs just the plan. So they had read the business plan and the other group of venture capitalists had watched the entrepreneur pitch. And they asked both groups the same question, which venture would you be interested in learning more about or possibly funding. And then the question was, were these the same or different? And they turned out to be different based on how, you know, what was happening interpersonally in the moment by how the person was pitching. Well, I can imagine an argument that's as it should be. Somebody could have put together very good numbers, but if they don't seem credible, they don't seem trustworthy, they seem arrogant, they seem dull-witted, that's data, isn't it? 
that's a fascinating perspective and that is exactly what an investor would say. Mm -hmm. But then I have to respond to that by saying, do you know every CEO of a stock that you purchase? The answer is no, (laughs) yes. Do you know how credible or, you know, do you meet with them before you put money in an equity investment? And likewise, the answer is no. But with this, we want to know who's going to be leading this new new venture, and it could be whether it's in the for-profit world or not for-profit world. We we do have this, I think, human instinct. Do we? We do. I mean, certainly, obviously we do. But that made me start to think, why? Why do we need to know the person? And what makes us think that we're capable of judging whether someone is credible, trustworthy, um, capable of leading the venture just from this 10-minute, 15-minute interaction? You're basing the entire investment decision? So when you looked more closely, what was it that signaled a good pitch? Because when you tell yes. me that, then I can say that's relevant or irrelevant yes. as to whether I'll put the money in. Um, so fascinatingly, and that's exactly what the stones I was starting to uh, unturn right in this research um, led me down to find that there is so much more weight put on how the person was presenting, which leads us to all sorts and leads us to being to being um, susceptible to all, all sorts of forms of bias. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the decision makers in the room, the venture capital community is 93% men, primarily white men. And then you look at who receives funding. And I was part of the Diana Project that looked at the amount of venture capital funding to women. Much less. Far less. In fact, less than 3% of all venture capital dollars go to women, women founders. So... You know, that raises a lot of questions in terms of, you know, are women not capable? Are women not pursuing VC? Are women all these, you know, all these doubts? But that made me think that there's something in the, specifically, since we're evaluating the person, that may be influencing this outcome. So some storm clouds start to appear exactly. on the horizon here. And so I've done a series of studies So I did um, a study looking at just at elevator pitches, and this was from the MIT elevator pitch competition. So these are all businesses that have started, and they're divided by industry, and they're judged by VCs. And I did another study where I looked at pitches to an actual investor group. Now, these were angel investors, but they act like venture capitalists because they decide as a collective group, even though they're making individual personal investments into a company. And what I found across a series of studies is that there's far more about what I would call, or you might call, I should say, subjective or these interpersonal influences that are driving whether or not the investors are interested in the venture. So what were you actually looking at? Were these videos of people making? Yes. And how, so it wasn't just what they said, but how they said it. So I coded across a an enormous number of variables. So I did look also at what they said in terms of the language. So we did language analysis, we did behavioral analysis. So coding down to, um, you know, whether they walked around, how did they use their hands, their expressions. We coded for emotions, and we coded for backgrounds. 
So, and things like, believe it or not, whether or not they name dropped, right? Did you use someone's name or your background or, you know, how much did you smile? Did you laugh? And what did you find was what? a driver of, <laughs> of a successful pitch? So, I, like I said, there, I've coded these in various ways using various, you know, researchy theories. And I found four main takeaways. The number one is, as you may expect, and this was my dissertation work, that the pitcher has to be trusted by the investor. And there were several things that led to trust, but primarily, because trust you can develop whether someone's capable or you can also use the other bucket of whether they have good character, kind of these, um, they call it like benevolence and integrity in the literature. But that kind of more, I would say, non-tangible aspects of the person was way more important. But when you say aspects of the person, if we're really being accurate, the way the person seemed. Yes, is that fair to say? exactly. This is their perception of the entrepreneur. It's not, maybe it's not who they are, who knows, right? But in that moment, that's how they seemed. So that was one. The second one was how much the person was somebody they thought they could work with. And so I take a mentoring approach to that. So whether it's somebody they say that they would be able to coach and who they would want to spend time with. And that was related to if they had similar backgrounds and how well the person was at basically being receptive to the investor's suggestions. It's interesting when you think about the perception, there's an old wisecrack in Hollywood, when you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. Yeah. So some of these people may have been very poised naturally, or they yep. may have been coached, or whatever yeah. the case may be, yep. but fraudulent. Totally. I mean, you right, the WeWork story, I think, is a classic example of somebody who's been able to win over certainly a ton of investment money, and who has essentially frauded all of his investors. You can also imagine, though, that there are times when people just can't win over others mm -hmm. because they don't fit the type. Yes. This is actually my other study, <laughs> um, because there, there had been a study that I was a little troubled by, because what the study basically said is that they had taken pitches, um, recorded pitches, and they found that in, investors preferred attractive men. And having worked in the industry, I can tell you without a doubt, that is not true. <laughs> um, you do not see models getting funded. Having said that, since I had the sample of entrepreneurs, we decided to code for it. We coded for gender, so we looked at both, we coded attractiveness, we coded male, you know, men and women, and then well, we took it a little bit further because our initial analysis, we did not find that investors were biased against women, even though the data would say they were, given the funding mm -hmm. outcomes. Um, but then we coded for behaviors, and what we coded for here were masculinity and femininity in how someone presented. And there's some classic masculine and feminine attributes that are still consistent, right? We think of men as being more assertive, bold, aggressive, and women are supposed to be more of the nurturer, caring, expressive, emotional. And when we coded the pitches that way, the entrepreneurs that way, we found that investors were biased against femininity. 
And I credit that too. And women are more likely to be feminine, right? But in our sample, we actually found women were more likely to be masculine too. And that's because I think they've learned that successful entrepreneurs are masculine, right? Or men. Men are the ones that get funded. Men are the ones you think of when you think of success in entrepreneurship. And so to be successful in entrepreneurship means you have to be masculine. And unlike other domains, because there is a lot of work in political science, you know, where women, there's a backlash against women when they act masculine. Yes. Or in management, especially. Um, it's not true in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So there the reward is in fitting the type. Yeah, exactly. So imagine whether it's one of your students or somebody who's a nephew or a niece, and they've got a really good idea and they're a wonderful person, but they're relatively new in the business world. Mm -hmm. Would you give the same advice to a man that you would give to a woman? if they're going to make a pitch. Absolutely. And what would the advice be? The advice would be, one, to really understand who your investors are. So know your audience, right? Kind of a classic acting lesson, right? Know who your audience is. Do research about your investors and their background and see if there's any areas where they would find affinity or we call it in-group bias, right? When there's similar experiences or they feel that they would be able to work with you, name dropping, et cetera. Um, and then to pitch, essentially, in a very bold, aggressive way. But then the last study I did, having said all of that, that you need to be masculine in a pitch, we also coded for emotions. And there's um, an assumption in entrepreneurship that entrepreneurs need to be passionate, that they should display passion during their pitch. and. I was struck because I was watching pitches for several years, and I would never have said that any of the entrepreneurs that we really cared for were passionate in their pitches. So we coded for passion. And what we found is actually passion is not effective with investors, but calmness is. That's interesting. Um, I've watched a fair amount of Shark Tank, mm -hmm. and it started because one of my students, Nate Barbera, and his classmate, Des Stoller, got on the show. And they ultimately got funded by Mark Cuban. You see these people, and some of them are very bright, and, and others maybe less so, but some express their passion, that they're putting everything into it, and that basically is the kiss of death on mm -hmm. that show. I can imagine that, as you're describing, that when people show calm control, yes. you intuit that there is emotion they're actually controlling yes. and can manage calmly. Exactly. I think that projects competence. And actually, I don't think that. We actually tested it. <laughs> it actually does. So it's so funny because it's actually changed the way I teach. And I, learning from Mike, the master, you know, I would say that watching Mike in the classroom, you always project the sense of calmness and competence. Right? I, have, I have my bad days. I can promise no, you that. I, I don't think so. <laughs> and so I've really internalized that now because... I think we think as teachers or being in front of, you know, an audience that you're supposed to show all this enthusiasm and, you know, passion for the topic or that you, you know so much. And 
you don't need to do that. And so when you go to pitch, I think it's much more effective to be very calm about your data, you know, show good Mm -hmm. data, Mm -hmm. but present it in a very bold, aggressive, and at the same time, a very calm way. Well, this has been very interesting. And it's interesting to me that this work has sort of followed you for a long time. I mean, you lived it uh, on the other side of the table. It has informed your research, driven it in some respects, and clearly it appears in your in your teaching too. Kim, last words. I want to say thanks, obviously, for Lakshmi for joining us. I think you've opened up a world for us to think about. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, You can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.